Uh, hello, welcome everybody back to the weekly watch. This is Mel, and today I am sharing my thoughts on five films with you. Um, I went to see Resident Evil The Final Chapter, Gold, Hidden Figures, Loving, and The Founder. Now, I want to start out with Hidden Figures because that was basically the highlight of the week. And um, in case you don't know what this is about, I mean, it's, it's creating a lot of hoopla at the moment because it is has been nominated for a few Academy Awards, amongst them Best Picture. So Hidden Figures is a sort of biographical drama based on, um, I, I think it's based on a non-fiction book. Um, there was a book published of the same name, Hidden Figures. And it's about um, female African-American mathematicians at NASA. And the, the book uh, takes place in the 60s, I think it is, like in, in the early 60s. And the film stars uh, Tarashi P. Henson, and um, she plays a character called Katherine Johnson. And she was a mathematician who actually got to calculate um, like flight trajectories for you know the Mercury project and and a lot of other missions that they did in the early days at NASA. Um, also in the film is Octavia Spencer. I really like her. I, I mean, who doesn't like Octavia Spencer, right? She's playing someone called Dorothy Vaughn, and uh, she's really handy, you know, with fixing things. You know, when the film starts out, you might have seen it in the trailer. She's like under the car and she's trying to get the car to restart and everything. So she's a really really handy person. She really knows how how to make things work again. And then you have Janelle Monet. I hope I pronounced that name right, as Mary Jackson. And she's um, basically the person who, who wants to be an engineer. And she finds out um, a really big flaw in the space capsule that they're gonna use to shoot um, John Glenn into space. Um, so she figures out a really big issue there and basically saves his life. Um, the film also stars um, Kevin Costner, Kristen Dunst, Jim Parsons, and Marshala Ali, you know, the dude from Moonlight, um, in, in supporting roles. So basically, it is 1961. It's the space race between Russia and the US, and it looks like the Russians are winning. Now, we all know that eventually the US, you know, torpedoed a man to the moon, you know, we all know that they won the space race for now. Um, but back then, when this film starts, the pressure is on at NASA, and then <coughs> Catherine. So Taraji P. Hansen's character, Catherine, she gets assigned to um, a program called the Space Task Force, which is Kevin Costner's team. And throughout the film, like she, she's she's one of the computers, you know, the, all the girls work in, all the women, sorry, all the women work in a pool of f uh, a female workforce uh, called the computers. This was before there was a, a proper computer like we now know. Um, so they were basically like checking the math and, and checking numbers and all of that and it was kind of like a pool of women and there was a pool of black ladies at NASA who were kind of headlined, well spearheaded by Octavia Spencer's um, character who was kind of supervising them without actually being, she was not allowed the title of supervisor. Uh, clearly because she was black. There were no black supervisors allowed, that kind of a thing. And throughout the film she's basically just like trying to sort stuff out her end and then getting a supervisor role and looking after the women that she's looking after unofficially and you have Catherine getting assigned to Kevin Costner's team as their computer uh, human computer so to speak and she's the only 
black person in that team. There's not even a black man there, let alone a black woman. So she's the only colored person in that team in a building on that campus or on the main, main facility um, where there is no other black person present. She's the only black person in this entire ginormous building. And she's constantly missing, you know, for, for extended periods on end. And she almost basically gets fired by Kevin Costa because he's like, where, where the fuck are you? Every day you're gone for like half hour here, half hour there. Where are you going? And she's just had it. Like you've seen her run across campus the entire bloody time and in heels and everything. It's just amazing that the kind of speed that she achieves it is fantastic there's a scene later on at the end of the film where she and a guy are running and she is basically running way faster than the guy even though he is. it's absolutely fantastic but anyway so Costner is like why the hell are you missing all this time it's like what, what are you doing you basically saying like, are you lazy you know we're paying you for this and where, where the fuck are you and she's just run back she, she always takes like all all the folders she's working on she takes them with her because also they're they're classified material so to speak she takes them with her when she runs to the loo because that's where she's going and it takes her like 30 to 40 minutes round trip to go to the loo because the loo is what, over a mile away because she's colored she, she's not allowed to use the loo in the building that she's in because there are no colored facilities there and she's just having this go at him because she's just been running through the rain with all these folders of classified material that she's working on and and stuff like that and and he's trying to have a go at her and she's just not having any of it and just gives him you know a sassy reply and you're like totally there with her and she just tells him like where do you think i'm going it's like i'm going to loo i have to I have to go to the loo and it takes me like 30 minutes just to go there because it's over a mile away and and all this other stuff she she does a really really great speech that I'm not doing justice here clearly because oh it is fantastic and she's just I'm so sorry that I'm missing a lot of time just because I have to go to the I have to go to the toilet a few times a day and everyone the entire pool of engineers and, and scientists and whatever everyone's just staring at her going like oh my god we didn't even realize that because she never brought it up. She was like, I'm sorry, but is there no colored bathroom in this building? No, because that's, you, you just didn't do that, right? And so she's running across the entire facility campus. I don't even know, NASA campus, whatever it is. She's running from one building to, to the next. It's so far away. It's absolutely ridiculous. But obviously it, it's not her place to say, it's like, I'm sorry, but can we have a colored bathroom in this building, please? And then, if you've seen the trailer, you know that Kevin Costner like smashes down the um, the sign for colored bathrooms, and it's like if we reach the peak, we reach it together. There's no segregation, and rah rah rah, um, which which is fantastic. You know, um, I, I really love that about the film. And you, while all of this is going on, I mean, even when she she comes in and she goes to like the coffee pot and she gets a cup of coffee and people are staring at her and then the next day she comes in there is a little tiny pot of coffee that says colored on it and of course no one's made coffee because she's the only colored person and it's just like what the fuck what's gonna happen if she takes coffee out of the same out of the same dispenser as you it's it's just so ridiculous and it's just that's how it was back then it's just ah. Oh. and then while all of this is going on you have Octavia Spencer's Dorothy you know she's trying 
everything she can to ensure that her human computer ladies, you know, the pool of ladies she's looking after, that they don't become unemployed when a new IBM computer monstrosity is turned on at NASA. And it is a monstrosity. I don't know if you've ever seen like the first computers that were put in place. They were literally like cabinets, huge. They were huge, they, they, they were bigger than a man. And that was just one cabinet. They needed several of these just to have like the first computer run a few, um, like just run a few equations. And it's really funny in the film when they bring in the computer, they have a specific room for it set aside. And they open the doors and they were trying to, to like wheel and Kevin Costner's like, did no one take measurements? Seriously, no one measured these fucking things? Okay, take down this door. And then they, they basically smash in the walls just so they can put the computers into the computer room. Um, and later on, you see that there's like a double door, a swing door, so that you can easily get in. It's like, no one take measurements, you can't get this through the door. It's kind of funny. But that, that's what, what the film's about. It's, it's, like, it, it's about how they propel someone into space. It's, it's about how John Glenn was shot into space. Um, and if you know about that, then you will kind of know what, what goes into that and, and, and what that was like back in the day. And it just shows you it just shows you a really interesting aspect that i didn't know that there were black women involved in 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 getting someone into space i didn't even know there were black men involved in getting you know men into space I, every time you see a photo of like from old historical nasa stuff it's all white people i mean back then i didn't even really see a white woman that that stuck out to me you know it was just it, for me it was like a white male thing and it was so cool to to have this film get like so much attention because it deserves attention because it is is so fucking important to have these hidden figures come out they were working just as hard and were participating just as much as other people of whom we know and of whom we've seen photos and and stuff like that so it's really really cool that they now get they get their time to shine because they were not supposed to be in the background anyways they were really fucking important um and so you have dorothy basically working out how to work this ibm computer um because the guys at nasa are trying to turn it on and for whatever reason it's not working the way it's supposed to work and they're going through manuals here and another manual there and those manuals were real big manuals like mega fucking folders and they just can't work it out but because Dorothy she has a knack to fix things so she goes into a library and she, she kind of like slides into the whites only section because she's trying to learn about computers and computer language and that book is not available to black people so she kind of basically breaks the law to learn how to work a computer. And then once she learns that and she like tries out the IBM computer and she actually manages to fix it, um, which was kind of funny. Like she was at, at like one of these, these little plug things, you know, where one cable goes from A to B and then the other one goes from, from C to D and whatever. And like a patch, like a patch field. And um, someone just patched one cable in the wrong way and she was like oh that doesn't go here that goes here and all of a sudden the IBM computer comes to life it was a big cliche I'm not sure if that's actually accurate probably not but it was kind of funny in film and I really liked it even though it is very cliche um, and she basically went to her pool of human computer ladies and taught them all how to work a computer 
so that when the IBM computer comes online and people are trying to use it and NASA, for whatever reason, they don't have enough people that actually know how to use the bloody thing. And that's where Dorothy and her ladies come in and they basically take over the computer pool and are like the specialists for that. And that is kind of cool to see because she she kind of anticipated, oh, this, this is going to make us obsolete. We're the human computers. This is a machine computer. We're going to be out of jobs when this thing starts running and starts doing its job properly. Um, and it was just really great to see that she had this idea. It's like, well, we can't be obsolete, so we need to learn how to work these new things, which is what they did. And then, bam, here they are, a new highly qualified workforce that you didn't know you have, and bam, there you are. It was fantastic to see that. And while all of this is going on, you have the third lady, Mary, and she is be has been assigned to the space capsule program. So basically, you know, the, the actual physical object that uh, John Glenn sits in that catapults him into space. And while she's there, she manages to actually identify a flaw <coughs> on the capsule's shield, heat shield, which is obviously vitally important to get him back in. If the heat shield doesn't work, he will just, you know, he will just combust while trying to re-enter the atmosphere. Um, and she's encouraged by her supervisor, who's a really nice dude, she's encouraged to get an engineer's degree because she has a knack for things and she's really good at like fixing stuff as well, so it's sort of like Dorothy. Um, and she, she's like, yeah, why, why don't I just do that? And she looks into it and it turns out the only way that she can actually be an engineer is she has to attend classes at an all-whites school which obviously is a bit of a problem when she's black and so she has to go to court for it and and all that happens there it's it's like you basically for all of the characters say they make a few steps forward and they get encouragement and there there are opportunities and whatnot and then one of the characters Kristen Dunst plays her I can't remember her name but she's like the supervisor of all the women and she kind of puts obstacles in their way all the time she doesn't want them to succeed that's what it felt like so it's like oh yeah you want to be an engineer oh yeah yeah you you have all the right qualifications and stuff but you know what there, there was this addendum to some NASA contracts or whatever to the NASA handbook you now actually have to have classes from this particular school in Virginia and that turns out to be an all-white school, which is why you can't be an engineer, which is why she then ends up having to go to court. Um, it's, it's basically really trying to keep black people out of the engineering business, out of the science business, out of, you know, anything that's a bit higher up business, which was really fucking annoying. But what they went, how they came about to changing all of that, I thought was fantastic. And that's what I really loved about the film. I mean, overall, the performances are great. I mean, you have Octavia Spencer, you have Taraji B. Henson, fucking fantastic, both of them. Um, everyone across the board is great. And I love space, you know, I love NASA and, and all that jazz. So this film is like really for me. And it's it's about, it's not just about equality and feminism and, and you know, fuck segregation and all that shit. It's all of that combined, it's, it's like, the message of the film is is what's great and it's so poignant and important and it's so current which is ridiculous when you think about it it's been over 50 years <coughs> since this happened and this is still fucking current it i, I just can't believe how ridiculous this is it, it is so 
bonkers that we're at the same crossroads again nowadays than we were 50 years ago. Over 50 years ago. And, and that's, I think, why this film is so powerful. It's not just about, you know, 50 years ago, this is what it was like. And that was like, I, I can't believe how horrendous and, and, and unjust and, and all of that it was. The, the weird, fucking funny, ironic thing about it is that we are at exactly the same junction in history again. 50 years later, how can this even happen? It, it's ridiculous. And I think this is why this film is really important to me. Like I said, the, the content is great, the performances are great. It's very entertaining from start to finish. It's very dramatic. There's also a lot of funny bits in there. It definitely, um, it, it focuses on Tarashi P. Henson's character, Catherine. Um, maybe a bit too much. I thought it would be equally, you know, proportioned for all the three ladies, but she's clearly the, head, the headliner. But, <coughs> but it does work and it's just very entertaining and it's gripping and you care about things and it's an important message nowadays and that that's why this should win best picture at the oscars i don't think it will but i think it should um also it might not be a hundred percent historically accurate i mean not that i did a lot of research but i wikied it it's interesting, read up on that. There's actually, just go for Hidden Figures film, Wikipedia. At the very bottom, they actually say what the historical accuracy was, what actually happened. And they obviously embellished it a bit for the film. They made it a bit more extreme for the film because they wanted to bring a certain point across or actually several certain points. And I don't fault them for that. And the entire film as a package, I think was very, very entertaining it was very gripping and i was in it a hundred percent i really i loved it from the start from start to end i was entertained throughout and i really felt with the protagonists all the way and hidden figures no more and never again go and see you won't regret it okay on to the founder all i knew about this is that it stars michael keaton and that is it was about the mcdonald's like restaurant group franchise thingy i had no idea what was happening in this film really it, it really astounded me i why would i ever like wiki or, or research the founding story of mcdonald's why would anyone really do that it was fantastic it was interesting like seriously it baffled my mind just watching this guy basically just bulldozer his way across everything and everyone and creating this empire that wasn't even his it is it is a brilliant film so what what it is basically about is like we're, we're in 1954 and you have uh ray Kroc, who's played by michael keaton and he is like a, a traveling salesman he's selling like milkshake makers or something and then just by accident he stumbles upon this really innovative uh, fast food restaurant there was no fast food restaurant back in the day um, called McDonald's they have this really interesting really efficient way of making burgers and milkshakes and fries so that within 30 seconds after ordering you will have your order it is fantastic just to see how they how they came about doing that and later on in the film you're also shown how they made their 
kitchen layout so efficient that it works the way it works. It took them like six or seven hours just to figure out how to do the proper layout so that it is as efficient as humanly possibly can be. And it was so interesting to see that. It sounds so dull and boring, but it is really fucking fantastic. So you have Croc realizing the potential of this, that he turned this into one of the biggest restaurant businesses in the world through being persistent and ruthless. He basically is a little motherfucker. And he's taking it away completely from the people who actually invented it. That's McDonald's. The McDonald's brothers came up with this really innovative idea of making a burger order be ready to eat within 30 seconds by minimizing what is on the menu and by optimizing the efficiency of the kitchen. And it is fantastic to see. It baffled my mind. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm German. I'm all about efficiency and uh, organizing stuff well. And it blew my mind. It is fucking fantastic. And throughout the film, you also learn the initial problems that they had with their with their franchise. Well, it wasn't really a franchise. It was just one restaurant. But because back in the day, like in the 50s, drive-ins were so big that everyone expected a burger uh, restaurant to be a drive-in. So when they expect you to move their asses out of their cars and onto a, a window where they can then order, it's like it didn't compute. It was interesting to see that, like how, how you make them change that idea and that concept that's in their minds, because you basically have to, you have to re-educate everyone of how, how to go around and get a burger. So like, what do you mean I have to get out of my car to get a burger? What the fuck? That I think there's even a dude in the film who says that. I was like, what? I, you expect me to leave my car to get a burger? What? It was really funny to see that. And just the technicality of it as well. It's like he goes into business. Con he has a business contract with the McDonald's. Um, because they said, yeah, we tried to franchise earlier. Didn't work out because people just, you know, they weren't diligent. And it turned into into a wasteland of, of like there was a lot of rubbish on the floor because people didn't really clean it up and and stuff like that it was horrible that the quality deteriorated and all of that stuff and croc was like no don't worry if i do it it's gonna work out fine and he just goes to his like high um like like really rich people that he knows because he kind of apparently he seems to be also a rich person even though he's a fucking salesman i have no idea how that works but okay that's apparently what what, what was happening so he's franchising it out to people that are rich and it then turns out that that doesn't work out very well because they also don't give a shit about it because they just see it as an investment so he has this really cool idea to just franchise it out to like middle class people that don't have the kind of money to just have other people look after it so they would have to be physically personally involved in the business which means they would be more diligent and would keep it cleaner and would adhere more to the guidelines that were set out by the, by the McDonald's. And that works out really well for him. And then in order to get all of the shit done, he has to remortgage his house, which his wife doesn't really agree on, but not that she really has a choice. He just fucking does it. Just like he does everything. He's, he's literally, he is a bulldozer. He doesn't give a shit about what you think, what, what he should do or whether you have any... Um, any uh, advice or, or, or opinions to the contrary doesn't matter what he wants to do he just goes and does it so he remortgages his house 
And then it turns out the, the revenue he gets from the franchise is, is basically nothing. Because he just gets a share of the profits. And the profits aren't very high. So he's like, oh damn, what, what can I do? So he goes back to the banks. They all know him already. He's like, oh, it's that dude again. So he can't get any more money from the banks. And that, that's kind of also a really funny sequence. Because he really goes to, what, 10 different banks that you see. And they're like, oh, don't I remember you from this endeavor? Or from the, aren't you the waffles guy? Aren't you the... The ice cream dude, or aren't you the whatever dude? You can tell that he's been trying to sell so many different things in his lifetime that every bloody bank in the United States knows exactly who he is and will not lend him any money without any more collateral. And the only thing he had was his house, which has already been remortgaged. So he basically can't get anything. He's lost, right? So he's not making enough money to even buy, uh, to even pay the mortgage back. He's screwed. But a dude overhears him um, at one of the banks. And he was like, do you know what? Can I have a look at your books? And he goes, yeah, sure. Why the fuck not? I was like, what? Stranger? Okay, whatever. Mm. He comes up with this cool idea of suggesting to him. It's like, mate, you're in the wrong business. You're not in the fucking burger business. You should be in the real estate business. I think they even say that in the trailer. It's like, you need to buy the land that the franchises are going to be built on. And then you're leasing this land back to the people that are using the franchise. So you will get rent every time that someone takes a franchise over and you get the profit on top of it like that a percentage of the profits so he makes up this whole new corporation that he is renting like buying up the land and i don't know with what money all of a sudden but i think he gets some investors together so he starts buying up the land that he then leases back to people that are investing in the franchise and then he makes shitloads of money that way it's basically insta rent Instant rent, guaranteed rent, and it's perfect. And that also, not just that he gets all the money, but it also gives him a lot of leverage over them because he's basically their landlord. So that way, it's like if you don't if you don't adhere to the McDonald's charter, and if this looks like a trash dump, you're out, and someone else can have it. It's fantastic, just the way that he he takes that but again you know he always says like persistence 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 it's not just persistence he's just one lucky fucking asshole if the guy in the bank hadn't told him about this he would have tanked with the entire thing and it would have not gone anywhere so he was lucky to just stumble across the mcdonald's restaurant in the first place and then lucky enough that this dude in the bank showed him like you should own the land it's on you're not in the burger business you're in the business is fucking fantastic and to top it all off to top it all off he then <coughs> starts out you know the mcdonald's brothers it was all about like um quality of the burgers and after milkshakes and stuff and the more that croc took over the empire so to speak he was like oh we can we can actually make more money if we don't put real ice cream in our milkshakes there's like this insta shake thing one of the, he meets a lady who is married to one of the people who's who's taking over one of his franchises. And it's clear enough, like Crocs into her. She likes that he has shitloads of money. She's like, there, there's like Insta milkshake and she even like pours him one in the bar where they're in. And he's like, fuck, that tastes like the real thing. Yeah, and it's cheaper. Because what shaves off all the profit of the franchises it is the, the electrical bills on 
the freezing units because they have to have huge freezing units with all these different ice creams so that they can make the milkshakes. And it's like, oh, we can just do instant milkshakes. And it was really funny to see, it's like, oh yeah, this is where McDonald's deteriorated. You know how we're always talking about how the quality of McDonald's is really bad. Um, like basically the meat they, they use is not really meat or it's meat that's gone off and it doesn't actually taste as good as it tastes because they use like taste enhancers in there and color enhancers and you know they just make it smell and taste and look good even though it actually pretty much is something that a dog probably would need you know that kind of thing it was interesting to see that once croc had taken over the empire that not, well it wasn't an empire to begin with he made the empire to be fair but the more control he had over it, the more it deteriorated in quality. And I thought that was really interesting to see. And obviously the McDonald's brothers, they're like, no, you can't do this. This is all in our name. What are you doing? And it goes as far. I mean, this is like huge ass spoiler territory, but the, he basically takes the entire company away from them. He buys them out and they basically lose everything that they've ever created. They still have their restaurant, but at the end, it's like one of the things that I really loved about it is when, when Croc explains, uh, because the brothers are like, why, why didn't you just steal our idea and the kitchen layout and just start your own business and whatever? And I was like, really? Did you not patent it? But okay, whatever. And he says, it's not about your kitchen layout and, and and the burgers it's about your name McDonald's the money and the power that's in your name McDonald's do you think someone would come and eat a burger at Crocs don't think so and as he said that I was like fuck no I wouldn't Crocs what but McDonald's that's an American name that is something that people go come up behind us they're like yeah McDonald's that's something and that's why I needed to get your stuff because I needed your name I couldn't just come up with the name. I needed your name. And so he buys out the McDonald's brothers and basically takes everything away from them. He takes their name. They're no longer allowed to call their restaurant McDonald's, even though that's their name, because he's patented and trademarked it. And he, he has just, he's, he bought them out fair and square, but he literally, he usurped the entire thing from the inside out, made it his own. He didn't create shit. He took something that was there and he made it huge. At that, he owned a multi-billion empire. It is absolutely insane. Just just watching how he comes in there, like, like the little snake that he is and takes it. And he was, I mean, I don't think that he was trying to, you know, get rid of them when he started it. That just ended up to you know to, to be the end game but I don't think that was his idea from the from the get-go but it's just interesting to see how someone can just usurp everything from the inside out and how how charming and 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 how convincing he can be it's like yeah you're part of the McDonald's family and they the McDonald's brothers didn't really think much of the franchising they were more interested in their own tiny little restaurant McDonald's number one, so to speak. Um, but he knew that if you give other people the chance, they're gonna jump at it. And they did. And yeah, it, he made McDonald's huge and he made shitloads of money, not because 
of McDonald's, but because of the properties that he owned, that the land was then on, that he would always get shitloads of rent for. It is like it's such a brilliant plan. You couldn't have come up with this. Like without this, this dude in the bank, he would have never even made it. It's fantastic, and Michael Keaton gives a really great performance. But there's not really much to this film other than seeing how McDonald's became the McDonald's that we now know. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating to see the tiny roots and then to see what it is now. I mean, it is a fucking empire now. Is there a single country in the world that doesn't have a McDonald's? Right? So just come to think of that. It's, it's insane. So just for that, I thought that was a really interesting idea in a film. Like it's not, I, I didn't find it very en engaging characteristically or, or something like that. I didn't really care much about the characters. It was just, it was like watching a really well done documentary almost. It is just like the, the, the facts are hitting your left, right and center. And you're like, I can't believe he just did that. Holy shit. And it's like, oh my God, I can't, no way. What a lucky fucker. And that's basically what it is. Persistence and being a lucky, egotistical fuckwit. That is what Croc is. You know, persistent and an asshole. And a lucky one at that. Because if he hadn't stumbled across the McDonald's Brothers restaurant, he wouldn't have had anything to make big. If he hadn't stumbled across this dude in the bank who told him, you maybe should rent out, like lease out the land that the stuff's built on, he wouldn't have made as much money as he did. It's just funny how stuff comes together like this for some people and not for others. And how, yeah, how it can destroy someone who's created something really fantastic. Um, like the, the McDonald's Brothers, their restaurant, their idea is really, it was so innovative and awesome. And if, if they had, you know, stayed on top of it, it probably wouldn't be what it is today. But yeah, there, there's a lot of what ifs. I thought the film was really interesting in just in, in its approach to, to these things and um, how, how something like that just comes to be. He basically created something out of nothing. He didn't contribute anything other than his own persistence and a bit of money and, and a vision. And that can just tell you that a man with vision or a woman with vision can make something really big. You don't need to invent something from scratch. You just need to find something that is worthwhile and you can make it huge. And he has. And it was just, it was just so fucking interesting to see it. I mean, there are, there are bits in the film that, that were a bit weird. Whereas if, if you know about the history of McDonald's, those things will mean something to you. Like he runs into a kid in one of the shops who seems to be doing really well. And he's like, oh, what's your name, kid? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, I'll remember his name. And later on, um, at the end of the at the end of the film, you know, they do these um, like these pa these text pages where, where they basically tell you, oh, this happened to this person and this happened to that person. And that kid comes up as well because apparently he was really important in the McDonald's franchise later on. None of this meant anything to me because I don't know the history of the McDonald's franchise. But even knowing nothing and not really caring about it either. Like I know what McDonald's is now. I didn't really give a shit where it came from. But the film really makes an interesting and well-rounded entertaining package out of this. 
And it feeds you all these facts that by itself sounds really boring and tedious, but it's made so entertaining. Just Michael Keaton basically shoulders this entire film and he does it in such a fascinating and entertaining way that I wasn't bored for a single second. I was just sitting there going like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. This is ridiculous. But you, it just keeps going and going and going. Like you, like really sooner or later, the, the guy's gonna have to have an obstacle in his way that he can't overcome. But no, he just does it. He just keeps persevering. He just keeps going, 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 going. And it's just, no matter what you think of him, and clearly I I don't necessarily really like him or his approach he basically stole from other people, but you have to give it to him. His, his persistence and his ruthlessness being literally, yeah, he, he was an, a fucking asshole to everyone. He even dumped his wife. Um, he dis he divorced his wife shortly before he got like all the money um he how did he say yeah she, she can have the car she can have the house i don't give a shit uh, but she cannot have a single percentage of my new empire and then he ended up or married the person you know the the pretty lady who came up with the insta shake idea and i was like whoa what, what a fuckwit his his wife was with him all this time and he remortgaged the house and all of that and she she just she stood by him for everything and then he just divorces her before he hits it big what a fucking fucking tool seriously but it's a really interesting film very entertaining even though it doesn't sound like it but i had a lot of fun with it and if if you like michael keaton i think you'll enjoy this film even more but even if you don't give a shit about Michael Keaton, it doesn't matter whether you like any of the actors. It's just the content of the film is so interesting and the way it's presented and put together. It's a really, really well-rounded, entertaining package. And I think even if you maybe go to McDonald's after, it's really funny just to, to learn how it came about. And I think you should go and see it. Those two hidden figures and the founder were the absolute highlights for me this week. Now on to Loving, which is another film set pretty much in the same era. I mean, Hidden Figures was in, what, 61 and the founder was in 54. Loving takes place in, in 58 to 67. So it's, yeah, this, this time frame is very, very popular, just like Jackie and, you know, all of that. It's like there's a lot of stuff happening in this, in this era. So Loving is... It's based on, on real events, it's a historical drama and it tells the story of Richard and Mildred Loving and they were um, the plaintiffs in a Supreme Court case in 1967, um, I think it was called, it was called uh, Loving versus Virginia, um, which the Supreme Court case was invalidating state laws prohibiting interracial marriage. I can't even read this properly. So the problem was is they were they were an interracial couple and in certain um, in certain states in the United States that was illegal. And the Supreme Court decision basically invalidated those state laws and saying interracial marriage is legal. This cannot be made illegal. It doesn't matter what state in the United States this is in. And we have Joel Edgerton. He stars as Richard Loving. And we have Ruth Negger 
starring as Mildred Loving. And we also have Martin Sokas. I never know how to pronounce his last name. You C-S-O-K-A-S, Martin Sokas. You will have seen him in like shitloads of films. He plays, as always, an evil bastard and he does it so well. It was fantastic. As soon as I saw him come up, I was like, okay, the sheriff, bad guy. And of course he was a bad guy. I love this guy. He plays he plays evil guys so well. I love it. So it's 1958. Richard and Mildred are expecting their first child and they want to get married. But they live in Virginia. And since it's against the laws in Virginia, because Richard is white and Mildred is black, they go to Washington, D.C. to get married. Not that that makes it legal in Virginia, but that's what they do. I thought like that, that was a re- very ill-conceived plan from the get-go, but that's just what happened, okay? I don't know why they did it. And then, of course, they go back into their tiny little town in Virginia. The sheriff finds out, that's where Martin Sokas comes in, and they are incarcerated and treated really badly. And the end of it all is they have to go to court, um, and the decision is they have to spend one year in prison or leave the state of Virginia for 25 years. They cannot be seen in the state of Virginia together for 25 years. And this is what they're basically going for, so they're leaving. But because she's pregnant, um, they return for the birth of their first child because Richard's mom was a midwife and Mildred really wanted her to help with the delivery of the child. And then of course, as it goes, they're arrested again but this time they get off scot-free because the attorney basically says, you know, he takes the fall for this and he's like, I'm sorry, I advised them this would be okay to come back for the birth of their child. I'm sorry, this was a mistake, my bad. And they are let go. So they return back to Washington again. And then, you know, we're, we're in the early 60s. Um, there's this, the march on Washington is happening. Mildred sees it on TV and she's like, you know what, I fucking had it. We have rights. This is, this is not cool. So she contacts like the general, what, attorney general or something. And he gets her in contact with the ACLU. It was really cool to see, but because I have no idea, but I didn't know how long the ACLU has been around. And it was cool to see that they were already around back then. Awesome. Um, so the ACLU basically are very happy to help them out on this because they think they can actually take this to the US Supreme Court level, not just the state Supreme Court, but the US Supreme Court level and basically get this these um, prohibitive rights abolished, these prohibitive laws abolished. So that's basically what the entire film is about. They have a marriage decree from Washington DC. It's not legal in Virginia. They then sue the state of Virginia basically for saying that this is unlawful. Uh, this law is, is not cool, it's unconstitutional. Um, and the ACLU helps them. So what I expected this film to be was more um, like a courtroom drama, almost like Denial, the film with Rachel Weisz um, about the Holocaust denial. I expected there would be a lot of stuff going on in, in courtrooms and attorneys and, and all of that, but that's not actually the case. You know, at least the first half of the film, I mean, most of it happened by, they just, you know, they just went about their lives. They just lived their lives, especially near the end, you know, when when the Supreme Court is um, is is in play, it, it's all the the attorneys are going to the Supreme Court. Um, the Lovings actually don't attend the Supreme Court hearing whatsoever. It's just the attorneys somewhere, I think in Washington it is. Um, 
And I thought it was really interesting to see that. It's like we see them just living their lives on the farm, being with their kids and stuff like that. While some men somewhere in a distant city who don't know them, who don't know anything about their lives, who have nothing to do with them whatsoever, they just go about and decide their lives and their fate. It was just, I, I really, I really liked that because at first I was like, why are they not attending the court hearing? But then you see this whole parallel montage between like the Supreme Court and their lives on the farm. And I thought it's like, it, it really brings it home how ridiculously stupid it is that some lawmakers somewhere should have a say about how they live their lives, whether they're allowed to be legally married, whether they're allowed to have children. It is just so ridiculous when you think about it. And I, that, that really hit home for me when I saw that near the end. It's like while they were making this decision and just how, it, it's just inconceivable. It, it, it's like two worlds. And one world has all the power of the, over the other and the other world has nothing to say. It's, it's just so horrendous when you think about it. Um, I'm not going to give away the, the ending, whether it's happy or not. If, if you know anything about the court case, of course you know how it ended. Um, the film was really surprising to me. Most importantly because, like I said, I thought it was going to be a courtroom drama, which it was not. It was more about the people. And I love that about it. Um, the, the performances, both by Edgerton and by Nega, were fantastic. Um, I think Edgerton gets overlooked quite a lot, which is unfortunate. Um, I have to admit, his performance as Richard, it took a lot of getting used to on my part. I thought he was, you know, he has to play the stoic man and that kind of, it kind of made him a bit boring in my eyes. I was like, fucking hell, does this guy ever show any kind of emotion? He, he was oh, like a few times, a few times he's allowed to to show emotions and that made it even more powerful so that was fantastic but most of the time in the film i was like is he a bit backwards is he not fully understanding what's actually happening around him like she she is clearly the one she's clearly the backbone of the couple she's clearly the one who's the driving force who's saying what's going on um and i thought that ruth negger played her beautifully um, really strong yet vulnerable and kind and understanding and yet unrelenting you know and it's uh, just everything that's going on there is is, is in her eyes is fantastic but with Edgerton I really thought for, for most of the film I was like flipping heck I don't think that he's fully with it um, his I mean his physicality was was interesting um, the, the film focused a lot on his work like every time you see him at work, he was at the same little corner of putting putting like um, bricks together for a house, um, and that that he would be bent over for pretty much the entirety of his workday. And I think that is something that physically showcased him and being quite awkward uh, when he wasn't working because he has this weird hunched over approach. It's it's really, really hard to put into words that there's a physicality about him that that I found very off-putting at first. I was like, what's wrong with him? There's, there's something really weird with him. 
and he like so hunched over and like everything was like um like his head was very forward and and like his shoulders and and just it, it was really weird but then when you see him work in his job as a brick bricklayer that's what it's called as a bricklayer it sort of kind of made sense because if you do that eight ten hours a day that really must get to you and that's kind of that makes his physical awkwardness it kind of explains it a bit and he either is a bit backwards or shy or both and he he didn't really to me it looked like he didn't really understand what was going on to him it was just simple it's like i love my wife i want to i'm married to my wife why don't you leave us alone and he's right you know when when it boils down to it that's what it boils down to it's like i love my wife shouldn't that be enough not that he says it. he just goes like i love my wife what well, his attorney his attorney near the end of the film is like do you want me to tell the supreme court anything he's like tell them that i love my wife and that's all he says and and that's all that should matter if you love someone and that person loves you back, if you want to get married, if you want to have children, what the fuck does the law have to do anything with that? I mean, of course, you know, if there's a huge age gap, I mean, if someone is underage or something, that's that's a whole nother thing. But let's just assume that everyone's above 18. Um, what's the law got to say? Anything in that regard. It's ridiculous. And just how yeah how how they were treated and it, it's just you look back on it nowadays it's like this is so ridiculous and you can watch this film and and it can be about an interracial marriage it could be about gay marriage it doesn't really matter marriage is marriage love is love it doesn't fucking matter if two people love each other of course they can get married what's anyone got anything to do with it other than those two people and I love that about this film. The, the performances were fantastic. And I, I love that it's applicable to so many different scenarios. And it, it also looked really nice. Like you, you see the rural uh, Virginia side, you see the Washington DC side. The, something happens in the film where I was like, oh my God, uh, I didn't see this coming. Um, something happens with the children. And I was like, oh no, you, you gotta be kidding me. But then everything is okay. I'm not going to tell you what, what, what exactly happens. But it's just it's just a really great film with great performances. It looks beautiful. And it's, I mean, like the title, Loving. It's a very loving film. It, it takes its time to introduce you to the characters and everything that's going on. And it takes its time with um, getting from A to B to C to D. But it's, it's the characters and the performances that really get you through all of that. And you're just in it. When they switch from the Virginia rural side to this, the, the urban Washington DC side. And, and the effect it has on them. Um, especially on Ruth Negga's character. Uh, I really like that. Um, because she obviously grew up with like wide meadows and plains. And you know. Um, and then all of a sudden she was in a city where it's like well you can't really send the kids out to play because there's the street and there's cars um they, they can't really run around and her kids are running around in the house and she's like stop running around in the house as she's used to the freedom of rural america whereas now she's living in washington dc which is very cramped and everything to richard it looked like the 
the transition wasn't as hard because he also finds a job as a bricklayer of course there's a lot of houses that need to be built um, so he just goes to his work and then he comes home to him it's not that big of a difference by the looks of it um, but for her it is it's two worlds and she is the one who is then instigating like this is not right what's happening to us we shouldn't have to live in exile we should be allowed to live with our families in our home and I thought that was very powerful um, just like Hidden Figures is, is very powerful just like a lot of films or, or stories and events that take place in this era because it was an era of, of upheaval a lot of stuff was, was happening in regards to civil rights and, and, and other stuff um, it, it was it was a time of change and that's why it's very very important and that's why there are so many films coming out like lately I feel like every second film I watch is from the 50s or 60s because it was such a pivotal, pivotal era. Um, there's so much good stuff and so many stories uh, that need to be told and so many amazing characters that need to be shown. And this is just one other film in that regard. And I think you should go and watch it, uh, especially because I think it's not gonna be in cinemas for much longer, which is unfortunate. Um, it has a very limited release, unfortunately. So Ruth Negar, don't forget about that. Ruth Negar, she's nominated for an Oscar. Um, as best leading lady, um, best actress. So go and watch it just for that. And trust me, you won't regret it. It's a really powerful film and it's really loving. And if you, if you don't feel for, for those two people, just trying to be together and raise their families and, and have a life that everyone should have the right uh, to have, then I don't know what's wrong with you. So go and watch that. Go and watch Hidden Figures and go and watch Loving. And if you want something a bit more sarcastic, go and watch The Founder. Now onto Gold. That's the newest film, latest film, with Matthew McConaughey. It's loosely based on true events. And we have a dude called Kenny Wells, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, and he's a prospector. And he's really desperate for a lucky break. So his dad was a prospector, he's a prospector. Something happens to his dad and he's no longer well off. He is basically, his office is in a bar because he can't even afford office space. And he is just so downtrodden and out of his luck. So he needs a lucky break. And he teams up with a similarly eager scientist who is somewhere in Indonesia. And they set off on a journey to try and find gold because that scientist, geologist, I think it's a geologist, um, he thinks that he knows where gold is. And so they go into the jungle of Borneo in Indonesia and they try to find gold. That's basically the premise of the film. And they find gold, or so we, so we think, and then everything just happens from there. And one of the best things about gold, uh, the film, is McConaughey's performance as always is impressive i mean he he really seems to be drawn to performances that wh where he needs to be very committed to change his body like this guy has a belly like remember christian bale in american hustle that's kind of what mcconaughey looks like he's got a huge ass belly he he has receding hair he has he doesn't have a lot of hair he's basically balding and has a huge belly and it's just a tiny bit on the disgusting side. And yet he has a really cute girlfriend, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, um, who sticks with him through everything. Uh, I don't understand, like, women are so attached to people. It's just, yeah, 
really they can like the the boyfriend the husband whatever they can treat you like shit and you you just still go it's like ah he'll be okay it's fine i love him uh that's basically what this film is so his performance is good i mean we all know mekane is a is a pretty decent actor um not just because of dallas buyers club and he's come a long way from you know just being the surfer dude but the film should be more than just about his bloody body changing performance and the problem is that it's not it's all about him being happy with his huge ass belly walking around just in his underwear looking as unsexy as one can be and I'm, I'm not saying that people have to look sexy on camera all the time that's not what I'm saying but it looks like this film really just loves to focus on how unattractive he is that that sometimes makes an entire scene and i remember the audience reaction around me every time this happened and it was just it was starting to get ridiculous so it's like yes he ate shitloads of burgers he has a belly he has a receding hairline he has not very sexy underwear it's fine doesn't mean that we have to focus on this every single time do we it, it's just a bit annoying so we have McConaughey in the Borneo jungle and they're they're trying to dig for for gold and stuff like that and then woohoo we find gold they get the results back they they found gold and then everything is just everything's just starting to happen everything is going crazy um, they're, they're, they're gonna start you know trading at the stock exchange and stuff like that everything's just happening for him now and he lives in hotels and he brings the girlfriend into the hotels and everything is awesome and rich and oh, surplus of everything it's fantastic uh, but what was interesting is that while all of this is happening at the entire film you know while it's trudging along the framework of the film seems to be that all of this is like a retelling of what happened as part of an interview now i wasn't really sure whether this was for like a magazine like gold diggers 101 or something or whether it was the fbi or someone else um but because the framework is part of an interview that clearly indicates that there's probably something going wrong fairly soon and of course it does so it's always the same with these sudden fortune stories you know you've got the downtrodden dude then there's one lucky hit bam rich and that usually doesn't last very long so I don't want to give too much away so maybe maybe a bit of a spoiler warning here but I thought it was really interesting to see how money can be made nowadays so now definitely huge spoiler warning for the film because I'm gonna be giving away the ending all right so move along look in the show notes where I'm starting to talk about the last film okay so these the gold find that they have the supposedly confirmed find of whatever riches that you find you just have to make it to the stock exchange everyone's buying up shares and then you ever so slightly start selling your own stock under the radar so no one notices and you make shit tons of money for something that doesn't even exist in the first place and by the time people realize that all of this is just hocus-pocus you will have made a few millions and buggered off. Now it's illegal, so you need to go somewhere where they're not gonna extradite you to the United States or wherever else it was that you fucked stuff up. But you're basically just trading virtual resources for virtual money that you can then make into real money 
if you time it right. It's kind of like the founder. You make something out of nothing. And with that nothing, you make other people buy into it. And that's how you make your money, by other people buying into stuff. It's, it's, it's almost like a pyramid scheme, sort of, but you're the only one who actually makes money out of it. So just again, if you're ruthless and lucky, you can make millions. And that's what happens in this film. It turns out the gold find of the century wasn't actually a gold find. Um, the results were tampered with. Um, the gold find that they find, um, like they take mountain or earth or whatever. So the gold should look, uh, what was it, like a crystallized way. Um, and what they find is river gold because it's, it's, it's all like um, soft surfaces because it's out of the river. And no one apparently in the laboratories, no one picked up on this. And everyone's like, yeah, gold find of the century. Fantastic. Woo. And just because of that, all of a sudden people bankroll you like crazy. Because, wow, this is the estimate of what's in this mountain. And this mountain is yours. So you're worth about $5 billion. All right, cool. And, and then basically they, they start, I don't know how how that actually happened, how they so quickly started trading at the stock exchange. But all of a sudden it was like, yay, champagne. Kapoor stock exchange woo, and people were buying up shares like crazy and that obviously made the you know the value go up and his partner ended up selling all his shares real quick before anyone realized that the results were tampered with so by the time obviously that was released all of a sudden the stock shares just dropped because no one fucking wanted them anymore because they were basically not even worth the paper they were printed on but the dude had already sold his for I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars. And he just buggered off. And I love the ending of it. Um, I mean, we are in spoiler territory here. So when Mekani basically goes like, oh yeah, I've lost everything again. Which is also when he goes back to his girlfriend, which is just so, ah. Um, and, and he opens the mail and there is this contract on the napkin that he signed earlier in the film. It's like 50-50 and 50% 50 of what his former partner made in selling his shares is like, I don't know, $80 million or something like that. So that was the end of the film. It was like, he still, he still had like, all of a sudden had $80 million. It was insane. Absolutely insane. Just like with the other stuff, like with the founders, they basically created money out of nothing. Um, whereas with, well, here even more so than with the founder. But in, in gold, it is literally just pretending that there is a gold find of the century. And that just makes such a hoopla and then they make money out of that and it doesn't even exist. It is absolutely fantastic just to see that. I really liked, well, I really enjoyed the film, even though when you think about it, there's not really much there. Like McConaughey plays a character who's not very endearing. His partner in crime, same. You don't really care about it. It's, it's just like you're you're an ex external watcher, an external observer, seeing w what's going to happen. But it's made in an interesting way. And to be fair, somehow McConaughey really, really keeps you with it. And I was with him the entire time. Like I really cared whether whether he he got this gold fine or not. But it, it was kind of like when you watch Wolf of Wall Street. You know, it's like oh, we we just start with these penny things, and then later on we're we're working millions and stuff. But at least there was stuff really there. But 
here it was like it blew my mind it's like all of this happened with something that didn't even exist this gold find was not there it's just because people thought it was that gave him money that he didn't have earlier just because this gold find is kind of the collateral for it and there was even a dude in the film who was the other big gold mogul whatever and he was like i'm gonna give you 300 million dollars for your gold mine and he was like fuck that there's way more in there than that because mcconaughey he didn't know it was his partner that fucked everything up right and it's just so mind-blowing like how you can make money out of nothing just out of an idea of something that might be down there you just pretend there's a gold find of the century down there and you have proof but you fake the proof and everyone believes it and all of a sudden you are worth billions of dollars it is fantastic how this dude made millions out of nothing i absolutely loved it so go and see that and last but not least Resident Evil, the final chapter. Now this one, I was really excited to see. I love Resident Evil. I'm a huge fan of the franchise. This is the sixth and final installment. There will be no more, or so they say. And we basically have uh, Mila Jovovich return as Alice, and she goes back to where everything began, Raccoon City and the Hive. And for whatever reason, she only has 48 hours to save humanity. That's the premise. That's the start of the film. Now, why she only has 48 hours? No one knows. We're not, we're not told. It's like, this is when Umbrella will, will destroy the remainder of mankind. We don't know how, we don't know why. We have no clue why 48 hours, but we're told 48 hours. So she better get a fucking move on. So the script says so, so we need a doomsday timer to run down for our hero to fight against. Cheapest trick in the book. Seriously, guys, you could do better. And the best, it, it just, it doesn't even make any fucking sense. What if Alice had been half an hour late? What was Umbrella planning to do exactly? We, we never find out. It's a bunch of bullshit. And that's pretty much the entire film, it's bullshit. Nothing makes sense. Everything is just conveniently so, just because the script says so. It's one ginormous facepalm. And I like stupid bullshit crap, like Triple X or something. I love the Resident Evil franchise, and it usually is bullshit crap, but this one is really motherfucking bullshit crap. Like, seriously. You know, when Alice, she's on her way to Raccoon City, right? She totals her car because she, she ran over some, some spikes, she immediately comes across a motorbike. Highly convenient. Then she has to dispatch a few umbrella goons for it, only to be rendered unconscious when she's trying to actually activate the bike as she has the wrong fingerprint and the bike zaps her electronically, electrically and she's, she's rendered unconscious, right? Why didn't they just let her access the bike? You know, the same result, right? And the goons would still be alive. Oh, right. There wouldn't have been a fight. And the script said there should be a fight. There should be an action sequence. Uh, it's all bullshit. It makes... Like, if this was a trap laid out for her, you could have just let, left the bike there. She would have zapped herself. And you could have just picked her off the floor and taken her to Ian Glenn's character, whose name escapes me right now. Doctor something. 
it's ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, the action was kind of cool, but oh, and speaking of action, make sure you do not, I repeat, do not watch it in 3D. The action sequences are so hectic, like th they're so frantically cut, that they're just a blurry mess. Like seriously, they're a headache-inducing nightmare. They're so ridiculous. It's, it's just like a blur of motion. I mean, I love 3D, but my head would be spinning just watching this in 2D, but 3D? I was tempted to really not even look at the screen or maybe look for a bucket. No, I almost threw up. That's how bad it was. There was just one ginormous motion blur. I could not see a thing. I, just from the sounds, I was like, oh yeah, she's kicking some big ass dude's butt but I can't actually see anything because we're, we're cutting and 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 there's everything is dark as fuck as well. The whole film is very dark. So seeing it in 3D makes it even worse. So I was really glad when, when the light was turned on temporarily in, in the film, like not, not in the theater, in the film. Although of course that signaled doom and danger, but at least I could fucking see people. It was really nice. But it was just such a dark and blurry mess every time there was an action sequence. And a lot of the action sequences, I think, they could look really fucking cool because this is what Resident Evil and the Resident Evil franchise as a film has always done really well. I thought the action sequences are usually really fucking cool. I love them. I mean, my first, um, my, my favorite is the first one when they are in the hive and they're trying to get out um, before all this convoluted backstory bullshit started happening when it was really, really good. Um, and the action sequences in there were fantastic. And I think the action sequences in, in the final chapter are probably really fucking cool too. It's just you can't fucking see shit. All you see is a big mess. Uh, Alice, big mess, a big mess on the floor. Okay, she won. And in between was like a kapoom, kapow, kapish, and, and that's it. You can't see shit. I mean, what a waste of, of money. It's like... You, Seriously, may maybe I need to rewatch this film in 2D. Trust me, I'm not gonna go back to the cinema to watch this. I'm gonna wait till it's like on Netflix or something. It wasn't that great. But maybe you can actually properly see shit when you watch it in 2D. In 3D, no fucking chance. Every time there was an action sequence, and this is a Resident Evil movie, every five minutes there's an action sequence, because that's fucking cool. Um, but I, I was just sitting there going like, mm some weird shit is moving really fast across the screen and someone's getting some ass kicked but I have no idea what the fuck's going on because I can't see shit. And I was always glad when the action sequences were over because I said, oh wow, I can actually see people in focus again. Awesome. I don't know if it was just a 3D, if it's just as, as mental in 2D. I assume not because 3D is always a bit like lazy in regards to like fast motions. It's not made for fast motions, is it? But it was, it was detrimental to the film. Every time I talk to someone who says they want to go into Resident Evil, I drill it into them. Don't watch it in 3D. Trust me, it's not worth it. Watch it in 2D. I'm really tempted to maybe go back and watch it in 2D, but there's just too much stuff out. I don't have the time. So other than me not being able to see shit, it was just the whole, the whole content, the whole story was bullshit from start to finish. Like they, they gave you a bit of backstory at the start about where the T-Virus came from, why it was created and what Umbrella was trying to do, which was kind of cool. But overall, it was like this, this whole 48 hour timer just was 
bullshit. It's like, what, what was Umbrella gonna do? Push a button somewhere to decimate the entire remainder of the human race? Before they then extinguish the T-Virus? Because apparently that was what Umbrella wanted to do anyway. So they just wanted to wait until everybody, everyone else who was human was dead. Because they only wanted to keep the elite that they have cryogenically frozen somewhere in their cellars. Um, they wanted to keep them around. So you couldn't have any stragglers around. So everybody needs to be 100% dead before we can release the antivirus. And of course Alice wants to release the antivirus while people are still alive. But this whole 48 hour bullshit is like it made no sense. We were never told that Umbrella has any anything going that would destroy the remainder of mankind within 48 hours unless i really fucking missed it someone tell me if i missed it it, it made absolutely no sense and then the it, it was an airborne cure which is even better right which obviously makes sense because you wanted to travel across the globe it works immediately so at the end you know they say that it takes the wind to spread it which makes sense and that's also where it takes a while until it will spread around the world. You know, it will take a few months or whatever, which is why there are still creatures around. But when Alice is near the end and she's surrounded by these hordes of zombies and she smashes the vial, immediately everyone falls over dead. You know, the gusts of wind where Alice was must have been really, really heavy to just destroy everyone around her immediately. It's a very, very effective airborne cure. It was just so... whatever. And then add to that really corny dialogue. The entire film's really cringeworthy. None of it... I, I can't remember a single thing where I thought that was really cool. Oh no, that was one cool thing. The flying creature that is after Alice. That is kind of cool, but I only think that's cool because I kind of like dragons. That's probably why I think that's cool. But also that fight with that creature, even though it's in daylight, which did help a bit, but it made my head hurt. Because it's just, it's not good in 3D. Just trust me, don't watch this in 3D. And one of the other things that was really stupid is like this whole tower defense game they had going. Like Alice is on her way on a motorcycle. How did she? Oh yeah, yeah, she got a motorcycle working with someone else's fingerprint because chop off someone's hand use the fingerprint yes it works um so she's on her way to the hive in raccoon city right and there's this ginormous skyscraper next to the road and there's a trap and she falls into it as she do because otherwise why would she stop here right so it turns out the rebellion is in there like a few few remainders include yay claire redfield yay ali larder is still around um and they just hang out and they just talk and you know as you do right and I was like, yeah, by the way, there's a zombie horde right behind me, so you guys might want to scatter. And they're like, yeah, we can't really scatter because we've got old people and in injured people and, and stuff. But they're at the really top, like the top of the top of a bloody high skyscraper, right? Like, I don't know, level 40 or something. And, and Alice would have just driven past that skyscraper because it's next to the road it's not like this is a cul-de-sac or something right but when the zombies then arrive it's like there is no way around this bloody skyscraper it's like they have to get into the skyscraper or there's nowhere else for them to go they have to crash through the main gate or there's nowhere else to go for them i was like when did when when did the the entire area around the skyscraper change 
from when Alice almost drew, drove past it to when the zombies attack it. Because wh when she was driving past it, there was like shitloads of space where they could have just walked past. But that would have, of course, meant that we didn't have an action sequence. That looks mighty, f mighty fine. And I mean, to be fair, this action sequence, when it, it, it's like out of Lord of the Rings, you know, when the orcs march against like Helm's Deep or, or Minas Tirith or whatever. It, it's like a horde of zombies going up against this tower. It's fucking fantastic. You've if you've seen the trailer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It looks fucking epic. It's one of the, my, my favorite scenes. But the problem is that in, in the entirety of the film, it makes no sense. You know, they, they, they would have just, if, if they hadn't been engaged, the zombie horde would have ideally just walked past the skyscraper because why would they enter this skyscraper if all the other buildings they were not interested in what makes this skyscraper so interesting all of a sudden it makes no fucking sense right but then we we wouldn't have had this really fucking cool action sequence and to be fair i kind of forgive him for that but it was it was one of those really another facepalm moment and to to make matters worse you have alice on a timer 48 hour timer right she hangs out with these people, they A-team the shit out of the tower so that they have a chance against the zombie horde because it's a really big zombie horde. And then after they defeat them, it's like, oh shit, you know, in the distance, oh boss, I see another zombie horde coming this way. Oh crap, what do we do? Oh, we better scatter. Why didn't we just do this before the first zombie horde arrived? Why did we not do this before the first zombie horde arrived? Considering Alice has no time to spare because there's a 48-hour timer running and yet she's like Let's A-team the shit out of this tower. Get rid of this zombie horde. We've got time people Let's just do this shit. Oh shit. There's another one. Okay. Now we have no chance against them. Let's gather It makes no fucking sense makes no sense makes no sense makes no sense It is so stupid it's literally the entire film is just like, okay, I want this action sequence, then I want this, and then I want this, and then I want this. How are we going to combine all this shit into a film? Here you go. Okay. Well, this makes no sense. It doesn't matter. The script says so. Oh, okay. What about this? Oh, it doesn't matter. I just say that this is so in the script. Done. What about this? Does not matter. That's basically what the entire script is. What the entire film is. It makes no fucking sense, even in its own set universe. It is absolutely ridiculous. The um, resolution at the end, when you find out about the characters and, and, and what happens and who's the traitor and, you know, the usual yada yada yada. It's just some of the worst CGI I've, I've seen and I've watched Rogue One in regards to, you know, uh, how should I say, face transplanting and, and stuff like that. It's, a, it's it's just very, very cringy. And when everything eventually goes kablooey, you go like, oh, thank fuck there can't be a next one. Because I don't know that you could actually make, make it worse than this one. This is the worst installment of the entire fucking franchise. And it's the last. And that's really bad. Because you could have made something awesome out of this. You could have. And you blew it. You ruined it. So... Go and see this if you love Resident Evil, and I'm talking about if you like the films, not the, the, the video games. I've never played any of the video games because, to be fair, I think I'd shit my pants. So watch this film, but keep in mind that this is not anywhere near as cool as anything that came previously, especially not the first three. I think they're my favorites. 
The third one is when we got Claire Redfield, wasn't it? But And then it just went downhill from there. Love Ellie Larder. It's great to have her back, even though she doesn't get a lot to do, which is unfortunate. I, I always love seeing Mila Jovovich kicking ass. Unfortunately, she usually does this in films that are a bit shit, which is unfortunate. Um, we need to get these people back. I, seriously, get Mila Jovovich, Ali Larder, and maybe get Michelle Rodriguez back. Just reanimate her somehow, I don't care. And get them to kick some ass in a different franchise. I'd be all for it. Seriously, what, watch Resident Evil because it's headlined by, by female cast. But unfortunately, I think this... It stinks a bit, you know, it stinks like a pile of zombie zombie flesh. That, that's kind of what it's like, unfortunately. It's it's not great. I actually think it's a bit of a doozy. Um, I, I kind of want to see it again for the action sequences in 2D, because I feel like I didn't actually see them. It's just someone waved something in front of me and I have no idea what I was actually watching. But overall, for, for the story, <laughs> ridiculous. We go and watch Resident Evil films for the action. And if you watch it in 3D, I think you miss out on it. That's unfortunately what I did. I thought I'm doing myself a favor and I watch it in 3D, but fuck no, that was not a good idea. Um, watch it in 2D. Let me know what, what the action sequences are like. Um, overall, I think I can't really recommend this film. No matter how much I love this franchise, I really want to watch the other films again now because they're fucking cool. And I, I like trashy sci-fi crap like this you know it's it's like ghosts of mars or something it's, it's like a b or c movie but it's done so well and so lovingly well that it's just so much fun to watch but this one unfortunately wasn't and it's a shame and that's why this is definitely the doozy of the week for me resident evil so let's go back and say it's like go and watch hidden figures go and watch the founder and go and watch loving those three films are really, really good, especially Hidden Figures, my absolute highlight of the week. And I hope it wins Best Pictures at the Oscars. I don't think it will, but I hope it does. It should. Um, next week, I will hopefully be watching Lego Batman, The Space Between Us and Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Not sure if I'll manage to get all three in there, but we'll we'll see. I do apologize for, for me potentially coughing and snotting a bit. I am a bit sick. I hope it, it was okay. I was trying to cut out most of it, but if there's something in there, apologies, don't worry. Um, I will virus check the file before I upload it. Uh, don't forget, you can email me at weeklywatchcast at gmail.com. That's weeklywatchcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the films I was talking about. Or, or any other films that I might have missed that I've not been talking about. I hope you have a good week. Sorry that it was late um, because I was a bit sick. But the next episode should be up by Friday or Saturday again. And I hope you have a lovely week and a good time. Until then, bye. <laughs>